This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. This week, we're talking accessibility pitfalls with Aaron Cannon. Aaron is the co-founder and chief accessibility engineer at Accessible360, where he uses his experience as a blind developer to improve real-world accessibility for all citizens of the web. He shares his first-hand experience on which practices work, which ones are bogus, where to focus our accessibility efforts, and which libraries provide the best starting point. I learned a ton, and you will too. This week is brought to you by Git Prime. If the company you work for is anything like the one I work for, you have a bunch of in-house solutions for observing team health and productivity. Who's contributing, how well, and how long it takes to ship something. But how well are those in-house solutions serving you? Has what you've measured proven actionable? How much productivity have you gained? And what is the opportunity cost of maintaining those in-house solutions? Are you getting your money's worth? GitPrime wants you to have visibility into engineering productivity while keeping your team focused on the product, not tooling. Their product is built from their experience of working with teams at Atlassian, PayPal, VMware, Adobe, and so many more. Experience that ensures the insights you see are proven to be actionable and improve your team's communication and velocity. Now, they're eager to prove to you what they know first in a free book called 20 Patterns to Watch For in Your Engineering Team. Visit getprime.com slash 20 patterns for a free copy today. Then when you want to see those insights in a beautiful application with data analyzed automatically from your Git history, visit getprime.com and start a free trial. Git Prime, engineers build business. Aaron Cannon, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So I was first introduced to the lore of you through Ryan Florence. <laughs> he, he, he's always talking about accessibility and the importance of accessibility. And I think that something that uh, really drives it home is, is that he talks about his experiences sitting next to you, uh, you guys working together at Instructure. Yeah, he was my manager, actually. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and these are always um th- these are always really uh, interesting interesting stories. But um, first, before we before we go into to all of that, and you know how much Ryan loves loves you and loves talking about you, um, I just want to give you an opportunity um, for the listeners tell us who you are, what you do, and where you're doing it. Okay, so uh, I'm Aaron Cannon. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I think I think we covered that. Um, I'm uh, totally blind, and uh, currently I'm working for a company called Accessible360. And essentially, what we do is help uh, websites, help companies make their websites accessible. So I also happen to be uh, totally blind, and uh, I'm a co-founder of the company. Okay. So, so my title is Chief Accessibility Officer, which you know, when you have a startup, you can. You can kind of give yourself any title you want. So <laughs> it's so true. That's one of the perks about starting a company. I think. <laughs> yeah, don't um, don't always feel like uh, you know the title fits. Sometimes it you know it feels a little big for me. But but nevertheless, it's um, uh, I suppose it's accurate in terms of what I do. Um, so I lead up our our team of auditors, and uh, we basically go through and uh, review websites for various companies. 
and not only tell them what's wrong, but also tell them, okay, this is uh, lacking an alt attribute, add that. Essentially just telling them, you know, here's what's wrong and here's how you fix it. Yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting to me. How does that usually work? Does someone uh, seek you out, like realize that they already have a problem? Do they do it proactively? Like, hey, we just developed this new thing. We want to make sure that it is up to standard. Um, Or is it, you know, the result of a lawsuit? Like, how do people find you and your work? So it's becoming more and more uh, of folks wanting to be proactive. But unfortunately, you know, lawsuits still are a big, uh, significant driver of um, of our our customers. And I think it's unfortunate, honestly. Um, you know, I, well, personally, I am a little bit torn on the whole um, whether or not we should be suing people for inaccessible websites. I mean, on the uh, one hand, I'm I'm blind, right? So having an accessible website, I kind of appreciate that. <laughs> but is lawsuits, are lawsuits the best way to get there? Yeah, that I'm not so sure about. Um, because, I mean, I don't think you're uh, making very many friends that way. I don't think you're necessarily winning people over to your side. Now, that's not always true. Some of the companies that we've worked with have you know, really taken this as a challenge. They've said, oh, yeah. you know, we've, we've been dropping the ball here. We, we need to do a lot better at this. And so they've really even championed accessibility. Uh, whereas, you know, it was just something that was completely not on their radar. And I think that's the thing. It's, I don't think it's that companies don't care. I think still, even now in 2019, when there's so much awareness uh, for a lot of companies... Um, they either think they're okay or they don't realize um, they don't know how to do it. Um, I think that's definitely true in the developer community. I don't think developers in general are out to get the blind people. Um, (laughs) You know, you're building a component. (laughs) The blind people hate this part. (laughs) Um, You know, that's, it's just a simple lack of, of education. The, coverage of accessibility topics uh, when we're training new developers is uh, subpar. We're, we're not teaching this stuff. Uh, so folks don't know how to um, fix issues and they don't even know how to identify the issues in the first place, uh, honestly. I mean, it's it's not malice, it's ignorance, largely, I believe. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I know that for me personally, you know, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk with you is that um, I know that this is something that that I am ignorant of. And as uh, someone who has recently come up into web development and was trying to learn everything as fast as possible, um, this is a huge, a huge blind spot in in my uh, education and something that I didn't at any point in my career up to this point feel like I had as much pressure to learn. Right. Right. And so I know that like, you know, as people are learning, there's so many pressures, but this seems to be one of those things that's, uh, I guess culturally kind of feels opt in almost. Is that, yeah, I I think you're right. Um, it's a seen as a feature, not a bug. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and that feels like the wrong way to, uh, to, to approach this. And I imagine that it's difficult. It can be more difficult to solve these problems retroactively than to have just done them better in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, um, you know, there's there's various estimates uh, floating around, but, you know, the cost is pretty significant, I think, adding on accessibility um, at the end. The nice thing about, you know, folks who use React, you know, it really encourages us uh, to think on a component basis, right? So we're, we're really focused on reusing code. Um, that's, that's sort of a central tenant of what we're doing with React. And um, so in that case, you know, it can be easier in many cases because you are able to fix a lot of these issues in a single place. Uh, whereas, you know, um, in, in other, other ways of building frameworks, you, you don't have as much code reuse, I think, um, depending on how it's structured, but, but, um, you don't have as much code reuse. And so it can be a little bit more difficult to, uh, track down and then fix all these issues. Whereas with react, hopefully, um, if you're breaking your site into to components and reusing those as much as possible, uh, you can, um, hopefully just fix it in one or two places and you're done. Nice. Well, I want to, I definitely want to get into to tooling, but I don't want to skip over, uh, your experience and, um, how you experience the web. Uh, and I want to talk about kind of the different ways I, I've been watching a lot of your videos on YouTube and you had a really interesting way of describing it that I hadn't ever thought of before, but the idea of, uh, kind of experiencing the web in one dimension. You know, we have so many dimensions that we we look at the web from, you know, whether that be like, uh, you know, color or, or motion or, mm-hmm. you know, position. And all of those happen on like a two or three dimensional space. Um, right. But experiencing the web in one dimension is, is significantly different. Um, could you tell me a little bit about what that experience is like? Yeah, for sure. So um, I personally use a screen reader. Um, I tend to use JAWS um, on on Windows. It, it only runs on Windows. And uh, the other popular screen reader is NVDA, which is free and open source. And uh, uh, arguably, in many ways, is probably a better screen reader. It's just I'm so familiar with JAWS that it's it's kind of uh, you know a force of momentum, I suppose. But uh, nevertheless. So when a, a screen reader reads a web page, it essentially has to, uh, as you pointed out, turn what is a two-dimensional experience, what you see on the page, uh, into a one-dimensional experience, um, which is speech. Because in speech, there's no concept of above or beneath. Uh, there's just before and after. So how it does that is essentially it's reading through the uh, through the DOM pretty much in code order. Uh, so... This is where your HTML markup is is critical. Um, I can't visually see that, hey, this text here and this control that's underneath it have a, a visual proximity, an association with each other just based on their visual proximity. Uh, it, that's not really something that the screen reader can, can deduce. And so uh, you need to make sure that you are associating that text with the form field, uh, usually by, you know, a label tag or something like that. But, um, there's a lot of, uh, visual semantics that we, I think folks tend to take for granted and, and assume it's obvious because you look at it, it makes perfect sense. Um, that has to be conveyed, uh, to the screen reader. And fortunately the, the best way to do that in, 
the majority of cases is simply by using semantic HTML. You know, the, the tools are all there. It's just um, we, we need to be better about using them. Uh, as far as, you know, how what it's like to, to use a screen reader, so I have, when I'm looking at a web page, I have various keystrokes that I can use to uh, jump around and um, you learn very quickly uh, to, to make use of these to help you navigate around web page, find pages, find the information that you're looking for uh, and so forth. So for example, I can press H to go from heading to heading. Uh, I can press the L key if I'm looking for a list, um, T for tables, et cetera. So again, Semantic HTML is, is really key for, <laughs> for making that work. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there are ways, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are, uh, there's a lot of documentation on the, the sites documenting ARIA attributes and how you can kind of, I guess, remake some of these implementations. But have you found that when people do that, that they're kind of like as comprehensive as some of the built-in elements? Yeah, that's... that's um... A pain point for sure. Uh, one of my uh, biggest pet peeves is, you know, in so many uh, React tutorials or or in other framework tutorials, you what what's your first example that you see? Uh, it's here's a div. We'll put some text in it, and hey, look, we can add an on click uh, event to it, real easy. And hey, now it's clickable. That's great, um, but not so not so awesome for accessibility. Uh, so, you know, again, I think this goes back to the, to the training aspect of it. Um, you know, so much of what we're shown in tutorials and so forth isn't, uh, isn't accessible code (laughs) and there's no indication that that's going to be a problem for anybody. Uh, and so, you know, folks really just never even occurs to them that, that that's a problem. Um, so to, but to get back to your ARIA question, yeah, it's it's definitely tricky. You know, yes, you can take a div, you can put a role equals link on it, and a screen reader will read that like a link. But if you actually want to enable the screen reader user to be able to uh, uh, click on it or for a keyboard user to click on it, you need to add a, a tab index and make sure that's, you know, set to zero. Um and uh, make sure that it's you know going to work when the user presses enter, uh, and so it's it's a little more complicated. Links are probably one of the more one of the easier things to fake, um, but it, you know why do all that work when you've already got the and, and the browser itself it already provides that functionality sure. for you. <laughs> uh, you know it it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, so what are the some of the motivations that you find that people have for stepping away from that? Is it uh you know is it some like design thing that they want to like try to get right or is it some new technology that they want to, you know, try to kind of make their own interaction with? Um yeah. When you see these in the wild, like what what ten- seems to be the motivation? Um I think a lot of times it's refactoring code, you know, to try to bolt on accessibility after the fact, which, you know, uh which is great, but folks don't want to uh go through the hassle of, you know, changing the control itself and so they'll they'll try to fake it with the uh the role e- role equals link or role equals button. Um that's that's a common one. Other times I see Aria misused uh, and it's, I think, again, simple misunderstanding of the uh, 
of the standard. So one that I, I see a lot is role equals menu item. So folks will say, oh yeah, well, this is a list of links. It's, um, it's in my navigation section. So sure, this is a menu. Well, the semantics around ARIA menus are probably a little bit different than, than what you're thinking of. And it's, it's more for, uh, more appropriate for drop down menus that you would find in, for example, an application like uh, Google Docs and so forth. So, um, your best bet when, when dealing with menus is not to use ARIA on that at all. Uh, and, and just, you know, have a list of links. Now, if you do have expandable and collapsible uh, content, um, there is one thing that you can do to communicate that to screen reader users, and that is by using the aria-expanded attribute. So basically, on the link that expands or collapses your menu, uh, you would put aria-expanded and then set it to true or false if the content is expanded, and then you would want to add an aria-controls attribute pointing to the ID of the element that contains the menu items themselves that are that are collapsed. Anyway, it's it's a lot cleaner, I think, than uh, using the role equals menu item. There's a lot that you have to do in order to to get role equals menu item to work properly. Basically, the screen reader at that point, if you put role equals menu item on something, the screen reader is expecting you to handle a lot of the navigation. Um, oh wow! So it's it's expecting you to be able to uh, support if the user presses the up and down arrow keys to move up and down in the menu, or if the user presses the first letter of an item inside the menu to to activate that. It's um, you're signing yourself up for a great deal of pain when you use roll equals menu item and and so forth. So just keep it simple. It's it's a list of links. You know, keep it that way. Yeah, uh, as much as possible. Now, one thing that I have I noticed in 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 watching some of your videos, which are excellent, and we'll be <laughs> linking those for sure. They're kind of old, but thank you. Yeah, some of them are are kind of <laughs> old, but still, like just you have a very good way of uh, very clearly describing kind of the problem and the solution for a, a lot of these ARIA attributes, um, and even in just the the maybe 15 minutes that I was watching some of your videos, I learned so many things that I, that I hadn't known. And <laughs> Thanks. Um, it, yeah, it's just really amazing. So we'll be linking a bunch of those. But I wanted to ask you about the problem of dynamism. So in one of them, you're, you're navigating a, a Cheesecake Factory website and you say that it's like, you know, it's pretty close, but like not quite there. Um, but one of the big challenges is that it seems like content was updating like either via carousel or... Um, you know, uh, something was being dynamically populated yeah. and some of that stuff was kind of invisible um, to you. Could you describe that problem a little bit more and how you attempt to solve it at Accessibility 360? Yeah, so um, honestly, if folks uh, want to do a huge service to the uh, accessibility community, you can uh, come up with a, uh, an accessible carousel uh, library <laughs> they're the ones that are common uh commonly used uh i think slick slider is is the big one that that we often see yep um yeah they've i give them a great deal of credit for trying so 
again, we keep coming back to the misuse of Aria, but this is a great example because they have uh, role equals list box on the list of slides, which uh, makes kind of sense. You know, hey, yeah, it's it's a list. Well, the problem is is that role equals list box is actually for um, something like a a select dropdown. So that's the kind of list box that they're that they're talking about a list that you can select something from not a not just you know an unordered list of things um so you know just to mention one problem anyway uh to get back to your question i think carousels are tricky um yeah i'd refer you to uh should i use a carousel.com it's a website <laughs> set up by webam it's pretty hilarious and uh uh, it's funny because it's true, um, but <laughs> anyway, they they make great points because carousels tend to be one of the more difficult things to make accessible. And one thing that we often encourage folks to do is to make your uh, you can still have your carousel be visually dynamic, you know, um, but maybe for the screen reader it doesn't need to be so. For example, for your sighted users, they're going to see the one item at a time, and it's it's going to rotate through, you know, standard carousel practice. But for screen reader users, maybe you can just show all of the items in mm. uh, in your slider, uh, just show them in like a list, and let the user um, see those. The user will be able to move through those and and click the links on the on the slides. Um, the only thing that you can kind of run into trouble on that is um, what happens when you do that is those slides that aren't visible become uh, reachable via the tab key for keyboard users. Sure. And so uh, if you're not careful, the user can end up tabbing into an invisible slide and you know basically their focus has been lost. So that might get rather confusing for them. So you just got to make sure that if a carousel slide receives focus, um, make sure that it's that it's visible. Uh, so if the user tabs into it, just switch to that slide. Um, but yeah, carousels are problematic in general. Yeah, uh, there's there's no good user experience with carousels when you're using a screen reader. There's uh, only less bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh well this is interesting you made a distinction that i don't think i'd ever made before uh which is this idea of someone who is using a screen reader versus someone who is um using a keyboard uh, to navigate and i think i've always conflated those two but they um you're clarifying for me that those aren't always uh, this the same people yeah that's correct so um a lot of times you'll have folks who will navigate websites strictly via the keyboard uh, by using the tab and shift tab keys. For me, when I navigate a web page, I rarely use the tab key unless I am navigating through a form. So what I'll typically use, I mentioned that you know when I'm using a screen reader, I have a bunch of uh, hot keys. What I'm actually looking at is sort of a virtualized view of the DOM. Um, so the screen reader kind of gets between myself and the browser. And so I can hit an H key. And rather than passing that through to the browser, it'll, it'll move me to the next heading. Uh, and so how I'm typically exploring web pages is I'm using the up and down arrow keys. And as I hit the down arrow key, it's reading the, la- the next 
line of content. It's it's not quite accurate to call it a line. It's it's more like um, you know a block. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, it'll you know. Th- so I'm reading through content, and then when I come to a link, uh, it'll tell me you know link next or whatever it is. Uh, and then I press enter, and it activates that link, and I'm on to the next web page. So, uh, so so that's kind of how that works for me. But yes, there's there's definitely a difference between folks who are using the keyboard and uh, folks who are using screen readers. It's uh, a lot of the same fixes uh, benefit both sets of users, but there's also some unique uh, accommodations that need to be made for each uh, user type individually. Um, with keyboard users, for example, just as one example, uh, focus indicators, really important. Uh, for me, eh, not really. <laughs> so um, sure. just as one example. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, but getting back to your question about uh, dynamic content, and, and I think it's a really important one because a lot of people sometimes can even overestimate uh, how difficult it is to communicate uh, dynamic content to screen readers, uh, not underestimate, but overestimate because they, they assume that, um, they have to do more than they, they actually do. So for a question I get a lot is, okay, well in my single page app, a user clicks on this button and then, you know, it, it takes them to a new view, but it doesn't take them to a new page. So, you know, uh, virtually, yeah, maybe the URL changes, but but they're still basically on the on the same page. How's a screen reader user going to know that new content's there? Well, the screen reader is going to expect that something changed because they clicked a button. And so a lot of times you don't have to worry about it because the screen reader did something to cause the change. Um, so they're going to be expecting the change. Uh, and they're going to be looking around for that content. Modals can be a different story, but the the trick with modals is, um, you know, they appear typically at the end of the DOM mm. or or somewhere else at the DOM. They'll they'll be appended to the DOM, um, but they'll you know visually they'll be in front of everything else. But for a screen reader user, they're still seeing the content in the background, and so unless you set focus to somewhere inside that um, inside that modal, the screen reader user is probably not going to realize that there's a modal in front of everything. They're still going to be working with the uh, the background content because, you know, by default, who's going to go navigate down to the very end of the page to see if there's any content down there all, right. all the way past <laughs> the copyright statement, you know? Um. <laughs> yeah, I remember Ryan saying that one of the hardest interactions that he's been working on in uh, in Reach UI mm-hmm. is the toast box one because it's this thing that kind of pops up, uh, you know, out of nowhere, and and like you said, is 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 likely stuffed in the in the bottom of the DOM, uh, and then it kind of like dismisses itself a little bit later. Yeah, and how and trying to communicate to uh, to to all screen readers consistently um, that that is there. Um, you know, momentarily and needs to be read at a certain priority is, is incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not uh, too, too challenging to get the screen reader to read it, but what if the user wants to reread it? Mm. Um, what if the user wants to interact with it because it has some, you know, some links inside of it. Um, but on the other hand, it's not really a modal. 
So does it really make sense to you to move the user's focus there? Yeah, that's that's a really tough one. Um, you know, just trying to account for the for the various possibilities, and a lot of times things like that have to be handled on sort of a case by case basis. So sure. Um, but yeah, I would I would definitely agree. That's that's one of the more challenging aspects of uh, uh, making sure that users understand you know what's going on. Do you find that these challenges have become more difficult with the, you know, proliferation of in-browser JavaScript uh, dynamic experiences kind of over the the web of a handful of years ago where it was mostly kind of new pages, um, you know, after actions? You know, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, it's tough to say because I, I think... You know, every generation of the web has its own unique challenges. Mm -hmm. um, back when uh, dynamic content was just, you know, we were we were just exploring that and seeing all, of, figuring out all of the horrible things we could do. Um, we uh, we didn't have Aria uh, when we were first starting to explore this, and so you know that was that was really interesting because then you had to try to. Um, to figure out ways to get the screen reader to do exactly what you wanted. That was a, a whole bunch of hackery and um, none of it worked yeah. very well consistently. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was an interesting engineering puzzle, but it was, you know, from the end user perspective, it wasn't that great. So I think we have a lot better tools now. Uh, the question is, is are those tools being used uh, or perhaps more importantly, are they being used properly? Yeah. So I have a question about tool consistency in terms of the experience of using different screen readers. Um, I noticed in some of your videos that you're demonstrating, um, one, how to use an iPhone uh, to, you know, or using iOS and voiceover to navigate the web or navigate the device. Um, but then on your desktop videos, um, you're using a PC. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the the variance between some of these tools and kind of how consistent they are uh, against each other? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so most the reality is is that most screen reader users are uh, on Windows by a wide margin. If you uh, WebAIM did a screen reader survey, and uh, I hope they update it soon because it's I think things have changed quite a bit since they last did it, but. Um, uh, I always wish there were there were more of those. So, um, in general, but I don't think they could do them fast enough to please me. But anyway, <laughs> uh, nevertheless, it's one of those uh, uh, one of those things that uh, is is pretty valuable. The one thing that I think is a little bit misleading, and and so you have to be a little bit careful when reading those results, um, is that they have. Sighted users who are testing with screen readers kind of mixed in with the general screen reader users a little bit. And so sure. um, they do kind of parse that out down in the uh, the narratives below. Um, so you, you do have to read a little bit closely to, to suss that out. But, um, you know, it's the actual screen reader users on uh, Mac that are that are blind and not just using it for testing is in the high single digits. So most other people are on Windows, and the two leading screen readers by far on uh, on Windows are NVDA, uh, which is, as I mentioned, free and open source, 
Um, I think I mentioned that. Uh, NVDA is free and open source. And then JAWS is, well, not. It's roughly $1,000 <laughs> for a license, um, which is which is pretty painful. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, the, the good thing is that they tend to work very similarly. So okay. if you're testing in NVDA, um, especially if you're, you know, not using a lot of ARIA, it's just pretty standard HTML stuff. You're going to find that the vast majority of the time, uh, NVDA and JAWS work pretty much the same way. It's when you start getting into a lot of ARIA um, that the differences start to appear. And, you know, they're getting better. Um, JAWS is definitely catching up uh, to, to NVDA in many respects. Um, for a while, NVDA had... Um, uh, much better support for aria and so forth but um you know so they're starting to to sh- be more in parity uh but there still is differences uh the more you go down the aria rabbit hole um so if you're only able to test with nvda don't feel too bad <laughs> a lot of times you know if you have a qa department uh and, and for companies will recommend okay give your qa folks jaws and give your developers nvda um and, you know, hopefully between the two of them, they can have a, a full amount of coverage. Um, on the Mac side, if you are using Mac, you're almost certainly going to be using Safari. Um, so testing in Chrome on Mac is is probably uh, should be way down the priority list. Um, but on the mobile side of things, uh, iOS has a very strong lead over Android. And the reason for that is, well, there's quite a few, but the big one is simply that, you know, I think um, Apple just, whatever they did, they did it correctly in such a way that um, I can download most apps from the App Store. And as long as the app is using standard iOS components, uh, it's probably going to be accessible or largely accessible. Um, so it's it's just... Um, iOS apps tend to be better out of the box Interesting. than uh, um, than Android. And, you know, I personally wish it was otherwise. I, I would like to be an Android <laughs> user. Um, I like the idea, at least. But um, in practice, it just doesn't make sense. And so uh, that's true of most blind folks. Uh, they're on iOS and using VoiceOver and Safari. Um, and then, of course, on Android. And it's... It's a narrower margin between you know Mac and Windows, uh, for sure. It's probably about thirty seventy on the on the mobile side, if I had to guess. Um, wow! But uh, yeah, it basically the take your your typical market stats and kind of stand them on their head, and that's probably <laughs> probably the usage amongst blind folks. So it sounds like uh, Apple kind of has a lead a little bit in that. In the same way that using semantic uh, markup elements on the web really can take you pretty far, uh, they've developed elements that are also providing that same value out of the box, like being accessible kind of from Go. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, the same is true on Android. The more you can use standard components, uh, the better off you're going to be in terms of accessibility. Uh, it's just that, um, yeah, the out-of-the-box components from iOS seem to be more accessible in general than the ones out of the box from Android. So if someone wanted to improve their game and have um, their accessibility game and have 
uh, I guess, have the highest hit rate for effort. Uh, it sounds like testing on a, uh, a PC uh, using NVDA um, is going to be a really good bet for your desktop users. Um, and then, you know, kind of navigating your site or app um, on on using voiceover on mobile, uh, sorry, mobile Safari mm-hmm. uh, is going to be kind of like the, the other second biggest group of people um, that testing for is important. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Cool, cool. Um, what are some things that people just kind of tend to overlook, um, particularly with dynamic sites? And are there um, ARIA attributes that they should be looking at um, specifically for the things that are kind of dynamic and pop in and out? Yeah, so there are live regions, which is a little bit of a Pandora's box because if you misuse it, you can really break the experience for screen reader users. What Live Aria, uh, excuse me, Aria Live uh, does is it allows you to tell screen readers this section of content is going to be updating frequently. And so I want you to read this every time it changes. I've been to some sites where they put Aria Live on all their ads. And um, <laughs> th- this is why I. A big part of the reason I use uh, uBlock <laughs> because, um, yeah, it's uh, you think ads are, are painful when you can see them, but um, you know, a lot of times they can be more painful. Uh, yeah, you know. On the other hand, actually, that's an interesting, uh, interesting sidetrack, which I don't think we need to go down. But um, <laughs> a lot of ads are just simply inaccessible. They're they're images without alt attributes, um, sure. or uh, they just yeah. So um, if you uh, you want an edge, if you run an ad network and you want an edge over the competition, make your ads accessible. Um, <laughs> but don't use Aria Live because people <laughs> <right>. just leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll make the site unusable, um, most likely. So Aria Live essentially can be very helpful for when you need to announce a message, if you have a flash message. Uh, again, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that just because the screen reader speaks the message doesn't mean that now the user has access to the information. If it's a short message that the user is unlikely to miss, or if they do miss it, it's not going to be a big deal, um, you know, like a flash message that doesn't have any interactable content, uh, then Aria Live's great because they get to hear that new content, um, but... If they need to interact with it, Aria Live is the wrong thing to use because it doesn't change their focus. They're not mm. they're not suddenly looking at that new content. It just got read by the screen reader, uh, but they may not know where to find it um, if they need to to click a link or whatever uh, to interact with it. So this would be things like you know profile saved successfully exactly. or yep. you know something submitted. Those types of things. Yep, exactly. Yeah, uh, precisely. You don't want to provide too, too much information because that increases the likelihood that the user is going to want to go back and reread that content. But like as, as the result of an action, that seems like maybe a, a, an appropriate place to kind of make that quick interjection of like, hey, the thing happened. Yeah. Or um, another great example is if you are creating a chat app um, and there's new messages populating at the bottom of the chat log, you know, Having that read out, in fact, there's a, a, a specific ARIA 
role for that. I, I believe it's uh, role equals log, if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, you can basically set that, and that essentially tells the screen reader, read everything that gets appended to this um, section. So, yeah, it's um, super helpful for that you know, scenario. Again, it really is a, a case-by-case basis. And um, if you are working on an open source uh, app component, whatever, um, and you would like some help or or even just some some advice uh, with accessibility, feel free to reach out. I'm uh, always happy to help out with so- open source projects in particular just because they are, um, well, you're not only fixing the problem for the visitors of a website, but, you know, potentially uh, for dozens of websites, depending on how widely that component gets used. And so um, I always feel like, you know, my efforts are especially valuable in that regard when uh, when working on sort of those those you know more commonly used uh, components. Uh, Reach UI is a great um, great library. I I it's still um, being built, but what's there is is super excellent. Um, really happy with with where that's going. So definitely keep an eye on that as well. Um, yeah. Hopefully, a lot of these problems can be solved for you. Well, I know that 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 you're a huge inspiration to Ryan because he he just uh, he he's always talking about like things that he learned that he couldn't have learned any other way than just by like sitting sitting next to you. And he he shares this story often about how you're like, hey Ryan, can you just click this button for me because I can't reach it with, with the screen reader. Right. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's. Um, He's definitely become a uh, an accessibility champion for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm I'm really proud of him for doing that work because I think it's stuff that we need, and I hope that the easier that it gets for people, um, you know, the the more it makes sense to just you know use these types of reusable elements by default, kind of style them however you need, and know that they're just they're going to work for you in the same way that you know we have some elements on iOS and and mobile and some on the web that just kind of work. Um, I think it'd be great to see more of that in React apps. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, you really do have to be careful. Um, if you go out there and search for um, an accessible component, a lot of components claim to be accessible. <laughs> um, but I I don't think the developers mean to be dishonest. I think they just have a different idea of what it means to be accessible. If, it, if you can use it with a keyboard, you know, that's accessibility uh, for many folks. And um, so you, you really have to uh, verify a lot of the claims that are, yeah. that are out there about accessibility, uh, which is really unfortunate um, because, you know, I think people want, who want to do the right thing are oftentimes misled uh, by components that, that claim accessibility um, but really aren't, uh, aren't up to it. I don't want to, you know, name names, but sure. Um, but uh, you know, if, if folks are, uh, interested in, in knowing whether or not, uh, something is accessible again, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help with that. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other folks who would as well. Um, you know, who can just look at something and take a, take a really quick look, uh, at something and, uh, be able to give you a, a quick thumbs up or down. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate the uh, the reach there. And I hope that, uh, you know, people do take advantage of that and uh, kind of 
maybe at the library creation phase, um, start asking, uh, asking for more help um, from people who are like day to day, this is their life using these, these tools. Absolutely. Um, so I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your, your openness about all of these things and uh, allowing me to ask you these questions. Um, how can people find out more about you, what you're doing and you know, how to make their stuff more accessible? Uh, well, let's see. There's uh, You can uh, take a look at our company website, uh, accessible360.com. Uh, I'm kind of terrible at social media, but uh, <laughs> you, I do have um, a user name on Twitter. <laughs> Not much of a presence, but I do have a username. Uh, so you can find me at uh, Canon A, C-A-N-N-O-N-A. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch. Just send me a DM or, or whatever. Um, you can also email me at canon a at gmail.com. Um, I have a blog again. I I'm, I'm terrible at, uh, social media. So, um, I, it's, it's a poor excuse for a blog. It's rarely updated. Uh, but nevertheless, that's at canonaccess.com. And, um, yeah, those are those are probably the best ways. Um, you know, I'm always happy to uh, to chat with folks about accessibility. It's um, definitely something that I enjoy doing. It's uh, it's my passion, and um, uh, you know, I, I think being a developer uh, does give me a little bit of a unique perspective because you know I, I can definitely empathize with folks who are trying to do it right yeah um, accessibility is hard I think unfortunately it's probably needlessly hard in, in many situations and you know that's that's probably the fault of um, you know myself and other other folks in the field um, that we haven't been able to to find a way to make this easier um, but on the other hand, if you want a skill which will make you in uh, really high demand and uh, make you extremely valuable in the uh, the marketplace, well, accessibility is uh, a pretty good option if you want to uh, if you're looking for uh, an area to specialize in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I wanted to say too, you know, despite your blog not having been updated in a while, the information that there that's there is is fascinating for you know <laughs> people who have a very limited uh vantage point into like knowing what these these roles do and how they're misused um i mean i i mean just in you know 15 minutes looking over you know some of the recent posts i was like i was like this is this is amazing this is so clearly different than the other material that i've read and i think it is because of your experience as a, a developer you know being blind and using screen readers um to to navigate and it kind of on both systems uh, you just really have a wealth of of information and clarity about uh, what needs to be done and that's it, it's absolutely amazing yeah well it's um I have fun and uh, don't uh, don't update things uh, nearly as often as I should. But um, but, you know, hope hoping to change that. But that's you know, that's been my goal for the last 10 years. So we'll see if it gets any better. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, hopefully we don't uh, overwhelm you with uh, with, with Twitter uh, ads or whatever, asking for people to. Yeah. Well, you know, you to look at people's libraries. I'll uh, I'll do what I can. But, um, you know, again, it's it's uh, an area that I'm always happy to help in as, as much as I can. So. 
Well, Aaron Cannon, I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to let you get back to your important work. Um, but thank you again. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. A big thanks this week to Aaron for teaching us about real world accessibility. Uh, he's so generous and approachable. I recommend that you follow him on Twitter and start a dialogue about the things that you have questions about. As you go, I hope that you were encouraged to validate the accessibility advice that you see. Find trusted sources and support libraries that are doing things the right way. Notes for this episode are available at reactpodcast.com slash 54. Thanks as always to our sponsor this week, Get Prime. Visit getprime.com slash 20 patterns to get your free copy of 20 patterns to watch for in your engineering team. It's beautifully illustrated and will absolutely improve your team's communication and productivity. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week. 